This podcast is part of the Podcavern Network. Check out other Podcavern shows at podcavern.com. Day two. Me again, Deirdre. I know. I kind of made you think I'd make you wait for my next message, and yet here I am, one day later. I know. Well, do you hear that? Just listen to this for a minute. Where did I say it would be tonight? In the desert near Schritt 1, right? To get some verdammt peace. My very words, if I remember, all right? Where do you think I am right now? In the desert, near Schritt 1. Turns out a lot of people start out on the pilgrimage. All kinds of people. Rich, poor, young, old. Men, women, and others. Brown, black, white, and others. The call of the hatch is heard far and wide, Dee, and apparently everyone and their grandma feel compelled to answer it. You want my opinion? It's because the one thing everyone knows is where the big long road starts. <sighs> so, Schritt 1 is more along the lines of a resort than a lonely temple or church in the desert. <laughs> Holy mother of God, my hand is killing me. Fuck this, I need me some music. If the masses need educating, I don't mind taking care of it. This is Dvorak's Mass in D major. Hmm. Whoever this is are taking it a bit fast. What are you looking at? Hey, if you don't like it, you can walk away, pal. May the big long road bring you somewhere. I'm not going to apologize for Fadam Dvorak, for heaven's sake. I tell you, Deirdre, the Fadam place is heaving, heaving with people. Praying, taking pictures, taking pictures of themselves praying, eating, drinking, multiplying, no doubt. There are at least three hotels within ten minutes of the hatch. Also, buying stuff. Souvenirs, medals, ribbons blessed by the local siblings, cheap omnibooks with improving quotes printed on the cover. Snacks, soy mutton on a stick is particularly popular. You eat it dipped in mustard sauce. It's pretty tasty. And last minute supplies. The next hatch is about 300 kilometers due south across the desert. 12 days march, give or take. So the shops selling dried food are doing brisk business. Now I don't want to judge, but by the look of most of these people I have a notion that I will, in fact, 
be more or less alone in the desert in about four days. I just have to refrain from murdering anyone until then. Speaking of which, let me tell you how my day went. The pain in my hand figures into it. First off, the hatch. I'm sure you know, but it feels like going to sleep. You walk in and through, your eyes flutter and close. You can't really keep them open because of the noise of anything. The noise of the hatch is its own topic, I can tell you. Anyway, when you walk out, it absolutely feels like you're waking up. As you're standing up, it's a bit startling. Here's the thing, though. You can, you can dream when you walk through the hatch. That I did not know, and neither did you, I'll wager. So, I dreamed. I'll tell you about it in a bit. It was a weird one. Outside the hatch, it was immediately people and dogs and cats and barbecue pits and the smell of cardamom and turmeric. As I say, I expected a temple or a monastery in the desert, perhaps a small inn. Don't know why, really. I mean, there's nothing truly surprising about how busy the place is once you realize that many, many people believe they are called to the first hatch. You know, if I hadn't been such a puerile idiot, I would have said yes to Danica and accompanied her here when she left. And then I would have had a heads up. On ne se refait pas. Deirdre, the place is a madhouse. So, right out of the hatch, once I've shaken myself awake, you understand, I start walking around, trying to find a cheap place to eat, I guess. Somehow, I found myself between two houses. It formed a sort of corridor, right? I was a bit too narrow for my taste. So, of course, that's where I got jumped. There were three of them, two men, one woman. The men had knives, the woman had a searer, or something that looked like it. The searer didn't scare me that much, it vaporizes too wide. And I could tell these guys were intent on robbing me. What they wanted was my money, at first. I gave it readily enough. I'll have to start working at some point, it hardly matters when. I'm not coming back. I mean, I'm not going backwards. Then, the taller troll asked for my omnibook. I kind of froze. Most of my stuff I don't really care that much about, but the omnibook is a lifeline anyway. Mine isn't even a particularly new one. We're just being greedy plonks. Both wings of Herr Gustavo's training were at verdumped war inside me, I don't mind telling you, Dee. For a minute, one wing was winning. I started handing the omnibook to the smaller guy. But he made the mistake of scoffing as he reached for it. The other wing of the training kicked in. That verdammt sneer set me off. I'm not proud of it. Don't worry, I didn't kill anyone. (sighs) 
But, uh, but when it was over, the sera was unusable, and one knife was on the roof. There were wails and moans and broken bones. I'm not going to lie. None of them mine. But I got my already half cyboed hand good and slashed. I may need a new finger to go with the three that already run on batteries. Verdammt nochmal. We'll see. I had my Omnibook. I had my money. In fact, I had a hell of a lot more money than what I'd started out with. That trio had been busy. I, I politely asked the one still conscious to introduce himself and his companions. Later, at the chapel of the hatch, I made a sizable donation in their names to the siblings of Saint-Michel. I prayed for them, too. But I can't say that I was all that ardent about it. I did keep the better of the two knives. Maybe I shouldn't have, but I'm only human. So, that was my first day on the big long road. Now to find lodgings. <laughs> but my hand smarts. And that's no dream. Oh, yeah, right. I almost forgot. During the hatch trip, as I said, I had another interesting dream. For a given value of interesting, anyway. You might get a chuckle out of it. I was alone again, in a large forest, at dusk, I think. Intense red-gold light, sun very low, but I couldn't see it well because of the trees. It was there, all right, bleeding through the leaves. Deciduous trees, all pretty big, but not giant or anything. Just, you know, solid leafy trees, like oaks, I suppose. It was all very, very beautiful, very romantic. It spoke to the soul. Evocative, if you know what I mean. Still, I really felt verdammt alone, though. Sort of forlorn. Defeated. I walked through the trees. There was no real path, but there was space between the trunks. I just had to be careful about the roots. I was wearing my armor again. Some of it, anyway. A brassard and a gauntlet, I'm pretty sure. Perhaps the breastplate. But I, I didn't have a sword with me. Instead, I was lugging an axe. And I could tell the forest wasn't too for damned happy about that. There was a definite edge to the rustling of the leaves. It felt like a warning. Some of the trees tried to trip me up to, lifting a root under my foot suddenly, real treacherous-like. Verdammt snakes. I was looking for the one tree that was waiting for me, that wanted me to cut it down. Don't ask me, I'm just telling it the way I dreamt it. It took me a while, and I was pretty much about to throw in the towel. I'd fallen a few times. I think I was crying, sobbing in frustration and despair. When I suddenly heard it, my tree. Vandera, it called out. 
It had a voice like the wind, like a, like a cool, soothing wind when you're exhausted from a hard task you have to perform in the sun. You know how lovely that is. Where are you? I asked. Follow my voice, it said. Follow your axe. The head of my axe, Deirdre. It, it didn't actually glow, but it might as well have. It was pulling me. I know that sounds like some weird sexual metaphor, but that's the dream. I'm not making this up. Well, not now. My brain did, through the hatch, obviously. I walked for a very long time still. I had to stop and eat at some point. In the dream. That's just bizarre. My tree didn't look any different from any of the thousands of other trees in that forest, eh? but it was unmistakable. Welcome, Vandera, my tree told me. I didn't know what to say to that. Would you tell a talking tree? Mind you, it's not like I was in the mood for small talk in any case. Take your axe and cut me down, the tree went on. It sounded a little deranged, honestly. Strike true, and take what you find. I make you a gift of it. Barking mad, of course, but I, I didn't question it. So I struck, but not true. I don't know how it happened. Was I distracted? Was the tree testing me? But the axe slipped, and I ended up hitting my left foot. The blade sheared halfway through my ankle and remained stuck in the bone. I couldn't draw you a diagram if my life depended on it. You can't imagine the verdammt pain, Deirdre. I don't know how I didn't pass out. Because I was in a blasted dream, I imagine. You'll live, said the tree. Cold, verdammt bastard. Night had fallen. Try again. I shrieked when I pulled the axe out of my own ankle bone. Blood gushed out like a verdammt fountain all over the tree's roots. I could barely stand. In a haze, I swung again, and this time I managed to connect solidly with the trunk of my tree. Three or four good hits with some honest follow-through, and there was a tremendous crack. And I held a shattered axe in my hands. Then, slowly, the tree went down with a scream. There was something inside the stump, D, sticking out of it in its exact center, glowing green and white. It was a sword, sunk to the hilt into the wood, hopping like an idiot on my good foot, gritting my teeth against the paint, trying not to slip in my own blood. I reached for the sword's handle. My hand closed on it. My gauntleted hand. Deirdre, it felt so right. 
Then I woke up. Pathetically obvious, isn't it? The tree is my old life, the sword my new, my foot the sacrifices I'll need to make on the way. I wish I knew why my brain feels it necessary to tell me ridiculous stories like this. To be honest, Dee, I'm no longer sure it was such a good idea to tell you about this. You'll think I can't cope with this trip. Don't feel like you have to tell anyone else about my insane dreams. I'll cope all right. But I believe I'll really have to see about my Fatam tent. Don't want it to get infected. There has to be a Cybo counter about the place. Maybe I should have kept a bit of my mugger's money. The Lord wouldn't have minded, I don't think. Hardly seems fair I should pay out of my own pocket for a finger they cut. All my love to you, Deirdre, and to the household. Be a pal. Put some flowers on Herr Gustavo's headstone for me. I'm sure he knows I'm already applying his lessons, though he's probably tutting from up there. And you? You do well in school, all right. I'm off to eat some soy mutton on the stick. Notes to Oniric, Day 2, by Teffer Troy, Doctoral Candidate, Alternative Narrative Traditions, Université de Montréal, October 12, 683. UDMID, TT, 603-782. The problem of the religious in Oniric is a complex one. Clearly, the tale does not want to concern itself merely with a vague sense of the spiritual. Prayers and rituals, foundational aspects of the religious practice, are important to Wanderer, but it is difficult to pin down just which religion he confesses. Though the name of Jesus is conspicuously absent, many of the references are overtly Christian, Saint-Michel being the obvious one in this particular episode. The term siblings is used to conflate both monks and nuns, usually called brothers and sisters, in a non-gendered way. However, mentions of temples and of Wanderer's dual training, moral and martial, hint at the type of nebulous east-west syncretism that characterizes a certain type of science fiction and heroic fantasy story in the early part of the old calendar 21st century. Over the course of the narrative, I will attempt to tease some sort of doctrinal consistency out of the text. There are already indications that Wanderer values a certain sense of asceticism and emotional restraint, and that he considers his brawl with the three ruffians who try to rob him to be a sort of moral failure. Or rather, he believes he should believe that, but he can't quite bring himself to do so. This, at least, is consistent with the Christian sense of constant bewilderment at never being able to measure up to Christ's example. Have you ever wondered what it's like to live in a city full of superheroes? To literally see people fly across the sky? To... To... Oh, ah, crap. What are you up to, Angus? Oh, hey, Sal. Uh, I'm trying to record an ad for the podcast. Heroes don't do paperwork? Yeah, that one. Need any help? Yeah, actually. Um, 
I'm just trying to tell people about the show, about, about how you and I work at a newspaper in Super City, and how we interview various citizens, from the people we call neighbors to the city's greatest heroes. But I'm having trouble wording it. You could just use that section you recorded and put that in. Huh. Yeah, I, I suppose I could. Thanks, Sal. Don't worry about it. I'm off to the office supply store. It got hit with a shrink ray, so everything is 50% off. Want to come? You know what? I, I kind of do. Oh, uh, <clears throat> for those of you hearing this, if you want to hear more about the thrilling adventures and heroics of Super City, come check out Heroes Don't Do Paperwork on the Podcaver Network. All right, let's go. <laughs>